First of all, I want to welcome everybody who's joined us today. It's a wonderful celebration, not just for our church family, but for my family. And um, thank you for being here. I want to start out by saying on this hot day, is there anything better than a cold drink or a good swim in a cold lake after a hot day's work? Is there anything better than that? I would say there's not. After working many days in the field, as I did in seminary, um, or hiking in the sun all day, as I know some of you enjoy, or even doing a bunch of yard work yesterday, there's nothing better than having that drink and jumping in the cold shower or taking a plunge in an ice-cold stream or lake. Water is a powerful symbol. It's a powerful symbol. God created it, of course, at the beginning. We read in Genesis. And water is the image that the Lord gives to us to mark baptism. And, of course, he turns it into something much more than an image or a symbol, but creates a sacrament out of it, making it a means of grace, a way that we receive the Holy Spirit in our gospel text today, Jesus is teaching during the Feast of Booths. I don't know if, if you caught the context. It was a short gospel, and if you have your bulletins with you, you can open up and take a look at it. It's John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. It's on page 6 in your order of service if you don't have your Bibles. And Jesus says this, beginning with the second half, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he goes on. And he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Immediately, those listening to Jesus on this day would have thought of that refreshment. The Feast of Booths is, uh, usually falls in September or October. And of course, at this area of the world, it can still be very hot in, in September or October. And so Jesus is speaking here of water and refreshment. And as he's preaching in the gospel, perhaps their minds would have gone back to stories of water. As good Jews, they would have known Genesis well. And so they would have thought of the beginning, how in the Garden of Eden, the water goes through the rivers and refreshes everything. Or perhaps their minds would have traveled to Exodus where water is brought forth from the rock, miraculously by the Lord, to give his people drink. Or maybe the healing of Naaman, right? Where Naaman comes and is told to dip himself in the Jordan so that he can be healed in Second Kings. There are many more I could go through, and their minds could have gone to any number of these, as ours might. But perhaps being in the temple, some would have thought, of our first lesson today from Ezekiel chapter 47 
And I invite you to open up to that passage. That's going to be the primary text that we go through today. Ezekiel chapter 47, starting with verse 1. It's on page 2 of your bulletin. As you're opening to that, we're going to talk about the significance of this water, of this vision given to Ezekiel, and how it points to baptism. And there's three things that I'd like for you to take from the sermon this morning. Number one, that this water is the gate. The gate. Number two, that this water is the river. And number three, that this water is the font. So the gate, the river, and the fonts of life. As we look at the passage first through the eyes of Ezekiel, we see this vision of God's promise to Ezekiel for the Hebrew people. The immediate context of this passage is the beginning of the exile. How many of you know what that means? What's the exile? All right, a number of hands. The exile of God's people happens in the Old Testament as a judgment. God's people have abandoned God and are forcibly taken from their land around 600 B.C. And King Jehoiachin is taken along with the leader, leading citizens, including Ezekiel himself, because he's a prophet and a priest, taken away from their homeland forcibly. And earlier in the book of Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel other visions as to why this happens. In chapter 1, God shows Ezekiel the throne room and the holiness of God, whom none can approach. Then we see in chapter 8 the rottenness and corruption of the temple and the religious leaders who have abandoned God and have started worshiping idols, having the audacity to set up idols in the temple itself. And then finally, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple in chapter 10 as a judgment on God's people. Things are looking very bad. There's a great deal of explanation as to why God's judging his people this way for their sins and abominations. But God continues to show Ezekiel the things that the human eye cannot see. How does he do this? Well, he pulls back in visions, these images, and this curtain is drawn aside, and Ezekiel sees the great spiritual war that's going on between good and evil, and how this great spiritual war goes on for God's people continually, both as a group and as individuals. We see in chapter 28 of Ezekiel what's called the lament over the king of Tyre, which is the story of Lucifer, that angel who rebelled and became what we know as Satan or the devil, and how he fell. Ezekiel gives, is given some of God's perspective, both in judgment and in mercy, and particularly today in salvation. And so there is great hope also. There is great hope in God's mercy and his salvation. God shows Ezekiel in chapter 37, ten chapters before today's passage, the story of the dry bones. Do you remember that story from Sunday school, right? Maybe you learned the song even. I won't sing it for you. I know I do that sometimes. But 
these dry bones that come back to life, this image how God says that he will put his spirit within his people and bring those who are dead, whose bones are bleached, who are utterly gone, back to life. From death to life, through water and the spirit. Are you getting the theme? The theme is so repeated. Scripture is replete with it. God's conveying to the prophet Ezekiel in this passage and to us that by God's grace alone, through the Holy Spirit, that which is utterly dead can be saved and raised to vivid new life. Which brings us to today's passage. Consider the river in the passage today. Consider its origins. Where does it start? Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing forth from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me on the outside of the outer gate that fades towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Well, there's a lot going on here, right? But what I want to draw your attention to is that the prophet sees the origin of what becomes a great river. And what's the origin? What's the origin in verse 1? The gate, the threshold, right? The threshold. And so the water comes up. It's bubbling up from the bottom of the gate, from the threshold, that, that bottom stone, right, that the door closes over. Some of you may have had to replace this in your home from time to time, right, because it rots out. The water is flowing up, though. It's gurgling up, and it's flowing past the temple's altar, going out the temple and beyond the temple. And there's this vision continuing with Ezekiel seeing this man who walks a thousand cubits, which translates to about 1,700 feet, or 567 yards, if that helps you picture this, right? So five football fields this man measures as this trickle goes into a stream, which goes into a river. And as Ezekiel travels through it, at first he's ankle deep, and then he's knee-deep, and then he's waist-deep, and then he's swimming in the river. Look at verses 3 through 6. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle-deep. And he measured a a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. And again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist-deep. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen." It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Son of man, have you seen this? How this gurgling trickle coming out of the threshold becomes this river that's impassable that one has to swim through. It's a powerful image, water growing exponentially. And in addition to the great quantity of water, this water has some really strange properties. Maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't as it was being read by Ryan today, but this water has some strange things. It grows exponentially, but it also 
cleanses. It makes salty water fresh. Now, how many of you remember your high school chemistry classes where you did mixtures and solutions? Think back. I'm, it's one of the basic chemistry classes. I got a D in chemistry, and I still remember this. What's the difference between a mixture and a solution? One can be separated and the other can't, right? The mixture you can be separated, the solution can't. If I'm remembering right, and don't take my word for it, you might want to go look this up. Again, D in chemistry. Salt water is a solution. Salt water is a solution. It's true that you can raise the heat and get the salt out of it. But it's a solution as the water is mixed together. And one of the things that you see in, in chemistry is that when you introduce salt into the water, the fresh water becomes salty. And you can pour in a cup of fresh water upon a cup, upon a cup, upon a cup, and yeah, the, the salinization might decrease, but you've still got salt water, right? But that's not what's happening in today's reading, which is weird. The water actually cleanses the salt water, pushes the salt out of the water. What's going on with that? And we know from the geography that this river running out of the temple is going into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. Now, if anyone's ever been to the Dead Sea, I, I think Father Bob has, right? Anybody else been to the Dead Sea? When you, when you swim in the Dead Sea, you can't swim on it. It's so salty that, that you, you actually kind of float on top of it. There's these pictures of people reading newspapers, like laying on it like a, like a lawn chair, right? It's eight times saltier than the ocean. Eight times saltier than the ocean. So this is a really salty bottom, body of water, 280 parts per thousand, if that means anything to you. And there's something else associated with the Dead Sea. And that is sin and judgment. Another name for the Dead Sea is the Sea of Sodom. The Sea of Sodom. You see, it was the Dead Sea created by God making the city of Sodom into a crater. When God judged Sodom for its abomination, it created the Dead Sea. And so what this image is conveying is that as salty and polluted as this sea is, God will make this water fresh through his water, through his water. This salt water will become fresh water, and in that fresh water will be life. And it brings abundant life. Look at verse 9, again in the Ezekiel passage. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for the water goes there, and the waters of the sea will become fresh. Now, the Dead Sea has no fish in it, because the salt is that much. It has no algae in it. There's only a, a little bacteria that can survive in it. But here we get this image of abundant life in the image, the vision that God is giving to Ezekiel of this water that grows exponentially, that defies the principles of chemistry, purifying the contaminated, and brings forth life, abundant life. And what Ezekiel sees is salvation, nothing short of salvation as God has planned it. 
And what Ezekiel sees here is beyond anything that he could possibly ask for or imagine. Ezekiel's wanting the temple to be restored. Think about it. He's in exile. He's wanting God's people to be reconstituted. He's wanting faithful priests. And there will be some of that that occurs. But the ultimate culmination of this vision is in Jesus Christ himself. God showing him that in the fullness of time, God, not man, will recreate fallen and sinful human nature in a way that is pure and thriving. And so the stream goes past the altar, which of course is imagery for the cross, where Jesus does die to open the gate of life. It's a recreation. God's giving him this image of restoration for all mankind, that all that believe in him can have this eternal life. But Jesus is the only gate, the only source of this water. The only way for us to have renewed life. Water is the chief agent in Ezekiel's vision and it's the entry into the church. It's through water in the sacrament of baptism that we are given new life. This past week, the church, the world over, celebrated the feast of the nativity of St. John the Baptist. And the principal message of St. John the Baptist is repent and believe to prepare the way for the kingdom of God. And the agent used, of course, was baptism. We know that John baptized Jesus even. But Jesus changes John's baptism when he's baptized from an act just of repentance and cleansing into a sacramental act, into something that does far much more than symbolize repentance, but brings forth new life in the person who's baptized. You see, this fulfills Ezekiel's prophecy. When Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, Jesus cleanses the water, making the water clean to be used as an agent of grace. It all sounds very technical, but that's because there's so much that goes on in baptism. And look, Jesus himself talks about it. When he's talking to Nicodemus, In John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The sacrament of holy baptism, you see, is entirely a gift from Jesus, entirely a gift from God, the gift of life. Just like being born into this world, is entirely a gift. We did nothing to bring ourselves into this world. And so we do nothing to be brought into the kingdom of God. There's nothing we can do that makes us worthy of it. Even repentance doesn't make us worthy of it. It's completely by God's grace alone. It's by Christ's grace given in the cross to us that this salvation comes to us. This is what St. Paul says to Titus. Look at our second lesson, chapter 3, and specifically verses 3 through 5 in Titus, chapter 3, on page 4. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
Now, does a slave have any control over what he does? Can a slave turn around? Can a slave enter the kingdom of God on his own? No. He continues with verse 4. But when the goodness of, and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Full stop. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Christ our Savior. What's being said here? That God is the principal agent of this regeneration. That God is the only one who saves us. And that the imagery here is so much imbued with the idea of baptism that it's hard, it's hard not to see it, right? This imagery of water being poured out richly upon us, of washing and regeneration. The imagery is powerful. Anglican theologian Francis Hall writes this. He says, Baptism is the sacrament of initiation into the sphere of regenerate life and sanctifying grace, upon the reception of which depends capacity to receive the grace of the other sacraments. The early church fathers treat Ezekiel's passage here as an allegorical vision foretelling baptism and grace. From Polychronos to Theodore of Mestasia to Ephraim the Syrian to Jerome, all of them see Ezekiel's vision this way. And the exponential growth of this grace starts with baptism. Notice what begins as a trickle travels past the altar to a stream, to a river, to a lake, to watering the world. And so what begins small in baptism opens the door to the kingdom of God and the riches of salvation, as St. Paul calls them, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Just like the water in God's vision, what begins with this small act of regeneration that we will see today in Patrick enables him to be a son of God enables him to grow in grace, enables him to partake of the rest of the sacraments so that he can swim in the grace that God pours out, grace upon grace. And notice that this gift is not just for him and not just for us that are baptized, but there's the third point, and that is that the river becomes a font because you as a baptized person become a font of grace to those around you. That's what Jesus says. That's his promise. Out of his heart, Jesus says, in John 7:37, will flow rivers of living water. And so we see that this grace gets poured out for the sake of others, not just to save us. Bishop and uh, J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, writes this, the fulfillment of the promise will never be fully known until Judgment Day. What he means is that we're never going to see how much God's grace flows out from us until Judgment Day. He goes on, That day alone shall reveal the good that every believer is made the instrument of doing to others from the very day of his conversion. All believers will be found to have been fountains of blessing 
by word or deed, by precept or by example, directly or indirectly. They are always leaving their mark on others. They know it not now, but they will find out the truth at last. Christ's saying shall be fulfilled. You see, in Christ, this thirst of yours is fulfilled, but so you also become a font for others. And so what does this say to us as we go forth today? Well, it starts with baptism. If you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Is the obvious first step. Get baptized. Follow the instructions of our Lord that this grace might begin in you, that you might become a member of the church, that you might become, and more importantly, a member of the kingdom of God. And if you have been baptized, great. You have peace and rest. You have come through the gate. But my question for you is, where are you in the river? Where are you in the river? Are you ankle deep? Are you knee deep? Are you waist deep? Have you just kind of lapped up? the little bits at the beginning after being baptized, or are you swimming in the river of God's grace? Where are you in the river? And secondly, how are you being a font of grace? Where are you conveying Christ's grace to those around you? You can't see it all right now, but you can usually see some of it. Jesus has promised these things to us. He's given you, friends, an incredible gift, a gift of life, a gift of renewal. Let us understand this gift of grace more and work with the Holy Spirit as he will certainly bring to completion that which he has begun. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.